Hello and welcome to this edition of Entrepreneurship in the Developing World. And this is Lincoln Dahl, Donavari Vizor, my partner, is uh, with us. Donavari. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Um, we have a special guest today, and I'm really excited to hear what we have to talk about when it comes to just risk and security and keeping yourself safe as you navigate um, wherever you want to set up your business. And normally, uh, you do the talking. Um, we'll do a little. I'll do a little more of it this time, um, because this is a friend of mine who uh, has been a friend for many years. We met uh, when we went to Thunderbird, the American Graduate School of International Management, which is a, a business school in, in, here in Arizona. In uh, I guess that was 1999. Uh, so we're pleased to have Ahmed Qureshi with us today. He is uh, an MBA from Thunderbird, also a PhD. Where'd you get your PhD? Was it King's College? Or... Yeah, King's College, University of London. Yeah, right. Uh, captain in the Naval Reserves and has been for many years. Um, has a wealth of knowledge, speaks a number of languages. Let me think if I remember well, your daddy's a Pakistani, your mother's a Norwegian, and you went to military school in Canada. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, actually, Northern Indiana, but it was oh, it was it was North. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. Okay, and um, it's been a, a wonderful and interesting friend for a good part of my life. Um, we brought Ahmed on the show because he brings a wealth of information about security in the developing world. He's played uh, a number of roles in uh, security and also in business. So he understands both sides. Um, so, you know, Ahmed, we're talking to people who are, um, going into the developing world sometimes for the first time and maybe doing business for the first time or going into places that they are, that are new. There's always a new place for all of us. Um, and physical security is always on our mind, especially if we were foolish enough to read what the travel, the travel notices in the, the state department website. Uh, would scare us all to go, not go anywhere. Uh, so we just want to help people have a little perspective about that. Um, and I'll start with a, a funny story. Um, my uh, when, when I lived in Cotonou, which uh, of our, I've been there just a little before or after me, in the Republic of Benin, our first baby was expected. And um, people said, oh, you're not going to have a baby in Africa, are you? <laughs> so actually, statistically, that's probably the most successful place to have a baby because they have more of them than anyone else. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's funny what the expectations that we develop uh, when we live in a, in one place and think about another place. But Ahmed, tell us uh, a little bit about your experience in doing business in the developing world. Just give us a little overview of that and help our listeners understand that. Well, if if it helps, I'll just I'll just give you a, you know a quick on my background what what why I'm interested in um, you know uh, international business um, um, and, and you know seeing things uh, grow economically in the developing world. Uh, you know, my my dad was actually born in British India, uh, and then um, uh, during the troubles, unfortunately, after independence and then the civil war that ensued. Uh, Part of our family, my grandfather, they lost their entire business, everything, and he ended up in Karachi. And so we heard all these stories growing up of, you know, losing everything and then actually having to go to like UN 
warehouses for food and, you know, things like that. And, and it, you know, at the point we're at in our lives, as we're older, no one really, where's the proof of that, you know, other than stories. And um, years later, I got a hold of those documents where you can actually see some of that. But I grew up kind of on those stories and knowing uh, how important it was that my grandfather said, we need to reset and, and get educated and, and rebuild. And whether that's you're building for the first time in the developing world or rebuilding because you lost it all. I mean, there many of the same principles are there. Um, education uh, is important and hard work and, and learning how to deal with failure, um, being tenacious um, and often, you know, just being aware of your own safety um, in some of these countries where the rule of law really isn't as developed as, we're, as we're used to in, in other parts of the world, um, namely in the West. Um, I, you know, you and I went to MBA school together and, you know, I went to Thunderbird because of the focus on international business. And uh, my first job out of Thunderbird was uh, I ran Middle East operations for Papa John's International. And I thought this is a great job. Awesome. I could, you know, get to help uh, young entrepreneurs in the Middle East, North Africa, um, open up, you know, a quick service restaurant type business, you know, that is tied already to a model that works in the West. And uh, it was a great experience for me to cut my teeth right out of school to work with the master franchisee partner for the company and their local team on the ground and having to take this model we had from the West and then without diluting the brand, uh, you know, create local linkages so that the business will be successful on the ground. So that was professionally, uh, that was my first real experience getting to do something like that. I, as a kid, I was very lucky. I, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. My dad was an oil and gas engineer um, for Aramco. And, and so we had, um, the ability to travel all over the world. And so I feel very fortunate that I was able to see all over the world, Asia, Middle East, South Asia, but being able to, so I, so I developed some understanding of the importance of security and how do you prepare for a trip and how do you deal with people in foreign countries and the respect that's needed there. And you can't just come in there and say, well, it's my way or the highway and, and try to actually enjoy what you're seeing in the, in those foreign countries. So those are my upbringing, my parents' upbringing, my mom's from Europe. Um, and, and then getting my first job, uh, you know, being in the middle East or going back and forth, at least in the middle East quite often. Um, it, it, it was a great experience and it began to open up my mind to other things as I was getting to travel around the region. So what would be your advice today to someone uh, who is going to go do business in the Middle East? Um, I mean, you grow up as an American or maybe a European, and the news out of the Middle East is mostly conflict. And so, um, you know, our parents would say, oh, that's crazy. Why do you want to go there? Uh, is that valid? Yeah. It, it, it... It, it only for people that are ignorant, right? And I don't mean that yeah. in, a, in a in a way that they're dumb, but other than that, if they've never been to a place, they don't know what it's like, and they, they might make that statement based off a stereotype. And we got those in the seventies, right? 
you know, we were still living in Colorado at the time and we moved over. And a lot of my friends, when we moved, we moved over at the same time in the late seventies, Saudi Arabia, people were like, why are you going there? And I, and I could actually understand a little bit back then because the infrastructure wasn't very well developed in the region. But today, um, in many parts of the Middle East, especially in the big cities, not necessarily in every spot in the in those countries, you have just about everything you find in the West. You have the internet, you have hotels, and um, their security forces. I mean, you've got a lot of the trappings that I think today would make you feel like, ah, there's an opportunity here to do business. Um, I think also the diffusion of information uh, through mobile devices um, to people in those regions has really opened things up to the point where people who are ruling those countries have had to say, look, we we can't do things the old way. Um, we have to do things differently. And in some places, you know, you get, you know, the Arab Spring, right? You know, people are frustrated and you know, politically and they want things opened up and they want better economic opportunities. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia is fascinating case study lot of change over the last few years there. I mean, you, you used to have to get a visa sponsored by the Ministry of Interior tied to a local host before you could even set foot in the country. Today, tourism it was unheard of probably five years ago, right? You know, we started hearing rumors of it in 2015, my very last trip that I'd been in the kingdom, 2015. We heard rumors of it, but it hadn't happened yet. And Everyone I was with were old timers who had been there in the seventies and eighties. We were we were on a on a kind of a re reunion type trip with a Ramco, and we started to hear about these changes that were taking place. And um, now it it is different. Uh, I talked to a lot of uh, friends that are on the have been on the ground. Um, my my son was just recently he did an internship for five months in Oman and then traveled all over the GCC. That trip he did would have been impossible ten years ago. Just. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't do it. So it's pretty cool, actually. I think this is a really neat time. A um, lot of opportunities to go into these emerging markets in, in the Middle East. So I'm glad you said Arab Spring. I was going to ask you about that, and let's talk about that a little bit later. But um, at the same time uh, that these opportunities are opening in the Middle East, we see probably increased insecurity in the Sahel. Uh, yeah. You know, from Mauritania to Juba, um, there's, yeah. there's trouble. So, how do you assess that? And, and what's your predict? What are your in, in, any predictions there? I think progress has been. I mean, if you look across the whole Middle East, North Africa, Pakistan, the MENA or MENAP region, however you want to, you know, define it. Um, obviously, the progress has been uneven. Um, some places, progress has been. Um, better than others uh, the poorer countries that don't have access you know to resources to be able to education and and have rule of law uh there uh, and also you know countries that are steeped in corruption right for hundreds of years uh, that's a real challenge i think and i think often those places um, obviously suffer more um, you, you, you often hear about the ungoverned areas, right, where or, or no-go areas for governments, where the government controls the capital city and a few outlying cities, and then the rest of the country. Yeah, they may on a on a map, and the UN recognizes that it's theirs, but they don't go into those areas. And I, I, that's a real challenge. And so, I think for anybody who wants to go and do international business anywhere, and especially in these countries where 
there's political turmoil and unrest. It doesn't mean there's not opportunities there. There may be tremendous, but you you need to do your due diligence and really figure out, um, you know, safety, security concerns. Do you have a trusting a trusted local partner on the ground that you can work with. Even if you have a trusted local partner, is, are the, is the security uh, is situation in a way that you can work with that partner still and progress whatever the goals are for your particular mission that you're trying to accomplish in the, in the organization that you're setting up? Uh, is it pure business? Is it an NGO? Um, it's tough. You know, I, I think of Afghanistan, for example. I mean, what a, what a just heartbreaking situation there right you know all that money dumped in uh, trying to make some progress and and you know now no girls could ever go to school uh right Right. at least they're saying right now so again you got this stuff and the sahel unfortunately is just one of these kind of ungoverned areas um or 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 very difficult places to manage right now um and, and so you know i think you have to tread lightly and really have some good local partners and some good knowledge before you you go on the ground to those types of places. So let's talk about that a little bit and okay. uh, drill down to the to ground level. Donabaru, or this being a native of Nigeria, Nigeria, and uh, me having done a lot of work in Nigeria. Difficult time uh, to take a train in Nigeria right now. <laughs> um, <sighs> quite likely that you might be a guest of someone else by the time you finish your trip. Um, so Ahmed, from a security standpoint, let's say. Uh, Donabari and I are taking a train uh, from uh, Abuja to uh, Kaduna and uh, or or south, and we get kidnapped. Uh, do we pay? Do we not pay? Uh, do we disclose that we have insurance? What do we do? <laughs> well, that's tough, right? Yeah, right? because you have the, uh, you know, it's a business for some folks. Uh, you, sure. you, you think of. The Somali pirates, right, and the pirate city that was there on the coast, and it it really was it's a bit it was a business, and until the international community came in and said, we're not going to let this to continue at the scale that it's been operating at. I'm sure there's still some of it there. Uh, it got, they got it shut down. Um, I I think if if you as an individual, let's say you're a student, right, and you're hitchhiking through and you're up in Timbuktu, right? Because you 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 read about Ibn Battuta and you want to go visit that city. You know, again, you you go there knowing the risks and you can get insurance and all those types of things. Um, and, and, you know, again, you have to have some smarts. I, I would never go to a situation where it's very, very dangerous like that without getting some training before. Um, I don't think anyone should go into those really rough places without having some kind of training. And that training could simply be um, an organization, you know, maybe you get a little bit of training from an organization that tells you how to, your posture, how, what to wear, what to dress. Um, and, you know, make sure when you get in country, you register with the U.S. Embassy, um, you know, so they know and then give them your itinerary and where exactly you're going to be and check in. There's waypoints along the way. And th- there's things you can do to try and mitigate um, the situation uh, so that you don't just disappear and nobody knows where you're at. If you don't show up after 36 hours and check in at a certain point, they know that something's happened kind of thing at the embassy. Um, and, you know, in terms of you paid for insurance and they're saying, hey, we need money. Yeah, that's a 
That's a tough call. I would I would say this, you know, if I'm there in that situation, I don't want any harm to come to myself. And I, if I had money, I would, you know, I would probably do what I needed to do to be saved. Right? Yeah, it's easy to say we don't negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, that's right. Or that's, terrorists right. Has zero. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. All right. And so um, from having sat on the other side of the desk at the embassy, um, I don't know how many times we've said, but you know, we're not the United States of the world. And it's unfortunate that your son came to this country and decided to smoke pot, but it's not worth it. We can't go bailing out. <laughs> Well, you just you just said something, right? I think it's so important. You got to have respect for the culture and the local laws, right? You can't, you know, you can't just leave the United States, Canada, or wherever you come from, and go to a country and think you can break the laws of that country and not expect consequences to happen to you. So, I think a extreme healthy respect for the laws are important. So, then hopefully, you won't get thrown in jail. So you, you've probably provided this training. Give, give us some pointers on the sort of training you would give someone before they went into a trouble area. You said, you know, that cover things like posture, um, probably a little bit of language, um, some some dress. Uh, and, and I think that probably the best point you made was don't go alone. If you don't have a good local partner, what are you doing? You're just a yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, it's like in the military, we say you need a battle buddy, right? You need a you need somebody to travel with. I think that's really, really smart um, to have somebody with you. Um, I, I I think, you know, there are, there are companies out there, you can Google them, a lot of ex-State Department, ex-government people who've spent their careers in difficult spots around the world. And they love it, right? They thrived on it. That was what they wanted to do. They raised their families in these places. And now they want to give back knowledge to people who are going to those places. And, and so I, I just, I think finding a company like that, that can help prepare you for a trip overseas um, is, is, is very, very helpful. Um, you know, I have a trip to Europe coming up, not that big of a risk, right? So I can do that risk assessment and probably training myself. I can look on the State Department website. I can look for travel notices. And you alluded to earlier, a lot of times those travel notices scare you to death, right? I know the Israelis always get mad at the Americans posting on, on, the, on the embassy, like, it's dangerous, you know, don't come. And, uh, and every now and then they'll joke, you know, don't go to the US. There's murders in New York, San Francisco, and LA, right? So they... <laughs> So, but I think it really does come down to you just, you know, you go to a lot of countries you can go to, there, there are parts that are safe and there are parts that are not safe. Um, just like in the U.S., there's parts that are safe, there's parts that are not safe, right? So I think you do some of that risk assessment, but before you go to an unfamiliar place, because you don't know what that is um, and and get as much, you know, pre-deployment, pre-trip training uh, that you can get that will that will be helpful to you. Um, I, I remember um, uh, years ago at Papa John's, you know, the company founder and a bunch of the executives um, were going to go over and meet with the king, uh, excuse me, not the king, the, the prince who is, was at the time the franchisee. And so actually, and, and some other, uh, other uh, senior people in the company, and we built an actual training, cultural training program for them. And it was just very basic stuff on things to expect because you're not in Kansas anymore, right? You know, uh, you're going off to this other place. And for people who haven't traveled, I mean, it was really, really foreign. And in some, scary. I'm like, listen, 
It's not scary, but here are some things you can do to better understand the culture, the religion there, and how families work, and hopefully answer just questions of any stereotypes that might be there. Um, you got me laughing now because I'm remembering uh, bringing some Mazungus to Tanzania. And the senior guys in the renewable energy business, they're trainers and we're bringing and train our, our customers. And acted like they knew everything. They'd been around the world. This one guy was from Canada. Five o'clock in the morning, he was storming down to the office, to the front desk in the hotel. What's that noise? How come they woke us up? What's that noise? <laughs> You're in Dar es Salaam. You got stereo. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Calls to prayer from five angles. It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 Awesome. He wanted them to quit. <laughs> well, you know, and in that case, you know, they should have had some training on the the history of, you know, of, of the place and the religions and kind of the the motion of society that exists there that you're walking into so that you can then adjust and operate and do what you need to do. Um, you know, Americans are famous for, I want the deal done now, right? So we're going to fly over there. We're going to maximize time. We're going to be efficient. Um, I'm going to land. I'm going to get a nap. We're going to have a meeting at this time. They're going to meet us. We're going to discuss the points. We're going to sign the deal. You know, I used to tell everyone, you, you go over to this in the Middle East, North Africa, these types of parts of the world, they want to know, number one, that they trust you, and two, that you're a friend. Because why would you do business with someone who's not a friend and that you couldn't trust? And 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 while there could be some changing norms now, uh, but I think in general that still exists. That it's more important that they trust you, and and uh, and that there's some some kind of cordial relationship there, and that takes time to build. You you, you might have to go over for two, three, four trips, and every time, oh, at least. yeah, and you and each time you're just eating and getting to know them, and maybe you get invited over to their house and meet the family. Oh, that's a that's a coup if you get to the house. That's yeah, right. That's right. And next <laughs> time they say. Next time they say, bring your wife on the next trip. Oh, now, wow. you know, now you know you're getting close, right? And then right. fifth trip happens, your wife meets his wife, and and then he leans over to you right after dinner at two in the morning, right? Because it's been a four-hour yeah. ordeal. goes, I look forward to being your partner here on the ground in country X and city X. Let's sign that deal. And that is tough when you're a publicly traded company operating on quarters. <laughs> You have to report that I closed that deal, right? Quarteritis. So I used to tell people, anybody who wanted to go do business in the Middle East, and I remember a couple of years ago, I had I'd just come off active duty. I'd been on active duty. I went back on active duty for three years, came off. I said, look, I, I, I grew up as an expat. I want to go back there with my family. And uh, 9-11 kind of interrupted that. So let's do it. So I started interviewing with a couple of firms that were operating uh, – uh, in the Middle East with headquarters um, in Dubai or Abu Dhabi, kind of that area, you know, good place to live. And and I would go interview and I and I had nothing to lose. And I just said, look, I when I interviewed, I, I know they were asking me questions, but I was interviewing them. I said, what's your commitment to the region? I was looking for patient capital, patient leadership, and did they understand culturally how things were going to operate? And I would tell folks, hey, look, if you if you have no presence there, it's at least three years of building relationship of trust. Don't expect any return on your investment at a minimum. Nothing's really going to happen that first three years. 
going to build the relationships. We're going to get the office open. If anything happens before that, wonderful. But it's going to take at least that much time. They're going to, they want to see that we're not just flying in and flying home, flying in and flying home. They're going to reward people who put roots on the ground, office, co-office, whatever that is, partner with someone. And then you start trying to sell um, and you're there for the long haul. That shows commitment, trust. You're not just some disrespectful Westerner coming in and coming out and you're just going to take everything and then leave. So that was that was always an interesting discussion with these executives because I just knew I just knew I'd done enough to go if you're not committed this ain't gonna work. Sure, so. hey, there's an interesting sub point that you make there, and 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 as you're talking about that, I think about some partners that I've had. We're friends and partners, and so whatever business comes up, we know that we're gonna work with him. Okay, so that's also the flip side of that is that well maybe he maybe Ahmed's not really very good at this business. And yeah. it's too bad. It doesn't matter. He's our partner. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's it's tough. It's it, it it can be tough, and you know you could get the wrong partner. Um, so look, there's risks in business, right? Yeah, that's why you really need to be careful. You know, it's like getting married, right? It's like you know whatever, right? You you want to really try uh, to do your research, due diligence, and get to know each other, so you make make the right decision, the right partner. Uh, so you can move forward and, and with your mission and grow your business. Um, the other thing is the 1977 Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, right? You know, which of course sure. was which was drilled into us in school. And you know, as Americans, that's another thing. You know, what do you do in these countries where <laughs> there's different norms? Uh, you know, you know, bribes, tipping, you know, things that are considered bribes under U.S. law and, you know, in the other countries, that's just the way business is done. Everybody gets a cut. Uh, that's normal. Uh, we want to take care of each, everybody. And we're friends and, you know, understanding those things. And sometimes it's legal and you just need to understand. Other times it's not legal. And if you're an American corporation or organization, you just have to be upfront with people and, and be straight. And you may not get the business, but the country from X country in Europe <laughs> that doesn't have sure. such tight laws comes in and gets the deal. But at least you're not going to jail. Right. right. So, or you, you have a level of separation where you can uh, you can still supply the goods, yeah. but not be throughout part of the corruption. Yes, that's right. There, <laughs> there are strategies for that, you know, that are acceptable. Um, and, and again, part of that is getting help. Um, I know years ago when I worked at a country, you know, at a company, um, this, they had done a deal, um, that I was like legally with, with a local partner. And I was like, yeah, you know what, that doesn't sound right. So I called a friend who had deep experience in that particular Middle Eastern country. And he looked at the deal and he goes, Oh man, that's a bad deal. Right. And so he had to work with them to help them I don't know necessarily unwind it, but now mitigate the risks of that bad deal. And, and so again, you got, it's, it's, it, it behooves anyone going into a foreign country, especially in the Middle East, the Africa region to make sure you pay for that help and advice up front to really do your due diligence, to make sure you're doing the right thing. So you don't pay for it later. While we've got you, sure. um, this has all been really good conversation, but, to give us an assessment 
uh, opportunities you see in the MENA now, uh, you know, starting in Morocco uh, over to the okay. border. And uh, it's just good to hear, especially what you say about Iran, Afghanistan, Syria. Is okay. there post-conflict question mark countries? Is this an opportunity? <clears throat> um, my son is doing Middle East studies in Arabic with a minor in global business at Brigham Young University. And he loves it. He loved the re- he's a language, culture, religion. He's done study abroad and all that. And I, I told him, you know, you really need to add this global business minor, you know, get some business training, right? So you can do things in the region. Uh, again, if you don't want to teach Arabic or go foreign service or go in the military, you need to be able to have some other skill sets to interact in the region. And, you know, myself being an entrepreneur for several years and dealing with the venture capital ecosystem um, pretty much everywhere I've lived, uh, that's a really exciting thing to be a part of. Startups, creating something new, and then once there's a great idea, getting it funded so you can take it to the next level, so you can create jobs and, and, and just grow things from there. That's exciting. And I've been fortunate to be a part of that and several startups in the United States. So I said to my son, you know, the interesting thing is in the United States, it's unbelievable the amount of money the venture capital firms have made over the last two decades. Shocking. They got fund after fund returning. Of course, some have not. But but in general, if you look at all the data and research, the dry powder, the amount of money they have is tremendous. And there's not enough good startups in the United States to invest in. Because we're not, we're, I mean, we're trying to create enough entrepreneurs, you know, people with ideas and help them, you know, have the skills to put together a, a 10 slide PowerPoint deck, you know, explaining your position and then also a business plan. But, it, but you know, it's just not happening fast enough for the growth of that in these funds. So I said to my son, one of the things I'm seeing, the trend I'm seeing is the explosion of international venture capital around the world. And it's it's really kind of fun to see. And you read about it, you know, down in South America, the explosion of venture capital down there. And so I said to my son, I, you're not set up to be able to get a good internship in New York or San Francisco or even in Utah, really, with a venture capital firm. Because you, you didn't study finance. You didn't do any of these other things. But you did spend time in Israel, Palestine, Jordan. You, you know, he was a missionary for two years where he worked with refugees in Holland from all over the world. A lot of them are Africa, Middle East, North Africa. And I said, now you've got some business classes under your belt. Let's find you an internship. See, let's see if there's a, let's see if there's a firm. Let's test this hypothesis. Is there a firm in the Middle East that you could go to that's venture capital firm? Sure enough, he found an, a firm called Phase Ventures um, in Oman and this is a the first venture capital firm in Oman. Three really savvy uh, Omanis who basically looked at you know what was being created in the West. Said we want to replicate that here in Oman, and, and so Zach. Uh, so they got their start. And you can go on their website and you can read about the things that they've done. I said Zach, your background. I think might you might have an opportunity with them. So he applied. And out of 500 people, three people were selected for this internship, and he just finished five months there. And what was interesting in talking with him is they were looking at business plans from all over the region there, and 
In addition, he started looking at all the other venture capital firms in the Middle East, North Africa region. They're, they're spread out everywhere. And what are they trying to do? Teach entrepreneurs how, you know, how to structure their ideas such that, you know, if you guys could put together a decent business plan, we'd like hopefully to find something that we can fund. So it's awesome, I think, what's going on in the region uh, right now. Obviously, Dubai's a little more advanced. You got things happening in Saudi, but it, you're seeing it across the whole Middle East, North Africa region. And I think what a tremendous opportunity for young people today to either be on the venture capital side or go to the internet, learn how to put together a business plan, type it up, study a few videos on how to do a VC pitch, and then go find a couple uh, Middle Eastern VC funds and say, I got an idea and pitch them. There's dry powder out there. And so anyway, exciting, exciting opportunities, I think, over the next 10 to 20 years to work um, in the Middle East at that at this level with, with entrepreneurs. You know, when my dad went to the Middle East in the 70s, that was the oil and gas industry. They wanted smart government. foreigners that had engineering degrees. Come help us develop our oil and gas industry. Well, that's done. That's there across the region, right? At least especially in the places that have oil and gas. But now it's not about the government providing everything for us anymore, right? How do we develop other parts of the uh, uh, our economy, uh, our economies that will generate jobs that are not oil and gas related or, or other kind of the core basic industries related? So it's neat to watch. So if you were, uh, if you were, final question here, I think Donavari, we're getting close to, to time, aren't we? But Yeah, we're um, getting close. <laughs> as, as we wind up here, uh, if you had, take yourself back to those Papa John days, um, if you were uh, getting ready to jump into a, a country today um, in the, the areas you know best in the Middle East, you know, what are your top three? Where would you go? Where's the opportunities? Not necessarily countries that are doing the best, um, by those um, indicators that the World Bank might measure, but um, from your own gut feel, um, where are the sleepers, where's the opportunity? Um, I haven't looked at the recent data, but just based on what I think, I mean, obviously Saudi Arabia is the largest market, right? And if you want to sell and do a lot of stuff, that's the that's the country with the largest market and the and the I think the largest growing population, and people often say, you know, we all work in the in the Gulf for the Saudis, right? In terms for the Saudi market, right? Um, but but then you have this. So so that's it depends if you want to jump into a large market that's emerging and it's just growing faster and faster, and there's a lot of opportunities. You could work there. Um, but the interesting thing, like you have the free trade zone in Dubai, which is really fascinating. You know, the hub and spoke here from Dubai in the free trade zone into other destinations in Africa, South Asia, and even other parts of the world. I, I, I wish years ago, I saw a great map. Um, they were promoting Dubai and it was like, you are X hours away from all these points around the world. And you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. So there's opportunities for corporations that are large to, as they're looking at their strategies to um, save money, 
or reset or grow to look at a place like Dubai. I, I think it's still growing there. Um, there's still lots happening. It's pretty cool. I know they just had the expo a little bit upset by the COVID-19, but there, there's there's some neat things uh, uh, happening there. But then, then there's just, it depends on your appetite for risk and do you have a family and are you young? But you know, you could go to Egypt, a, a, a big economy. There's there's venture capital firms there. There's companies that are trying to start and provide jobs. You could go there. And then if you're really, really, you know, um, you really, really want to get on the ground, you know, you can go USAID, right? You know, the things they're doing on the ground, you know, it's, it's they're, they're, I think there's something for everyone, depending on the level of risk and your interest, you could probably find something to do. Um, you you could join the U.S. military and become a, a, a foreign area officer. You could you could you could go join the State Department. You know where you you know you cut your teeth. I mean, there's there's neat entry points, but I think there's more entry points to go work in the region today than there were when we were starting out. Just because of technology is the great equalizer. You know, giving internet, phones that work, devices that connect people, education. Um, it's just it's just transforming and changing the region, and it's really exciting to see. Ahmed, thank you so much for your time, your experience, and uh, sharing with us today. Ahmed Qureshi, President CEO of Built International. Uh, you can look him up on the internet. We appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on today. Happy New Year.